Good evening. Tonight's uh, New Testament reading is actually from Psalm chapter 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, shall we pray together? King of glory, we pray that you might come in our midst, reveal yourself to us, to the heart that's tired, to the soul that feels broken, to the one that's seeking, to the one that longs to be renewed. Come, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. How does trust in someone grow? How does trust in someone grow? Well, I have found it to be that the more and more we see their character and the good things about their character, our trust grows along with that. And that's why we're spending time studying the character or the attributes of God so that we can learn to trust him more. The more we see of him, the more we'll be able to believe him as it relates to his kindness and protection, which Mike preached on the last couple weeks, and as it relates to his glory, as we'll look this week. Now, the thing about God's glory, it's not quite an attribute, but rather it's the greatness and the beauty of all his characteristics and attributes together. It's a uh, it's the shining down of light upon everything that God is. This is what glory means. However, in this psalm, there's actually two things that are highlighted, that God is a glorious founder and he's a glorious presence. And the way it's presented to us, the setting of the original psalm uh, is both unique and compelling. Let me try to give you an analogy. Oftentimes, not this week, but oftentimes in our church, we will do what's called a call to worship, where the leader stands up and he leads out with some scripture, and you as the congregation answer back. It's a call and response. Well, 
this setting was David, King David, and a procession are before the gates of Jerusalem. And they have with them the Ark of the Covenant. Now, don't think Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ark of the Covenant, it's, it's supposed to be the same thing. Uh, but it's about a four-foot-by-two box, gold-plated, where God attached his special presence to Israel. So David shows up with the, with the procession of God's people outside the gates of the holy city, Jerusalem, and he has the presence of God with him. And the one that's the gatekeeper, their job is to say, who goes there? Identify. And so the gatekeeper asks, and this is what we get at the end of the psalm, who is this king of glory? And the whole procession would have responded, the Lord, strong and mighty. And then he asked again, who is this king of glory? And again, the procession would have responded, the Lord of hosts. Now, in that, there's a couple things we learn right off the bat. First of all, uh, it's easy, well, not really easy, but it's somewhat easy just to come to church, right? I mean, it's not too hard to get to the building and come inside the sanctuary. You see, King David, when he came to the gate, he was asking for entrance into the holy sanctuary. But it was more than just the building he wanted access to. He wanted access to the full presence of God. And so for you to come here each week and for it to mean something, you need to see the glory of God. God needs to shine down on who he is. So it won't just be showing up. But second, there's a question posed to you, you and I, and it's this. Will you, will you and I open the gates of our hearts this evening? Will we open the gates of our hearts? And will we behold God as a glorious founder and a glorious presence in a new way? That's the task before us. So let's look at those two things. First of all, God is a glorious founder. Now, the world is full of great founders. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs founded great companies. There are those that founded well-known religious denominations, John Wesley, Richard Allen. There are those that have founded nations, Thomas Jefferson, I would put Frederick Douglass in that category as well. I remember when we were in Turkey, uh, the Turks would often say, uh, Mustafa Ataturk, he gave us everything. When you'd mention him, they would say, he gave us everything. Well, the apostle, uh, rather, uh, David, who's writing, is basically saying the same thing. God, the Lord God, has given us everything. He has been the founder, the author, and the creator. The world and all its peoples, the world and every person throughout history are the work of his hands. The work of his hands. A surprise to modern people, you didn't make yourself. You really didn't make yourself. The Lord God caused you to be made. That's no easy feat, right? The world and all the people in it. In 1991, um, eight men and eight women, dressed sort of in Star Trek kind of outfits, um, they entered a glass and steel complex that was three acres large in the desert of Arizona. It was called Biosphere 2. And their task was they wanted to live in an enclosed, self-sustaining world. And if that worked, thought, well, maybe we can move this thing to outer space. Right? Makes sense? That was, that was the thing they were shooting for. 
And it was an amazing thing they built. There was over a 6,000-foot rainforest they constructed. There was over a 2,000-foot ocean with tides, and uh, as well as that, there was a coral reef they attached to it. There was a mangrove wetlands, grassland, a fog desert, and an entire agricultural system. This is what they made. But they ran into problems. Uh, the fish began to die, and they clogged up the filtration system. Uh, they had more condensation than they want, so the desert got too wet. That's a problem. On top of that, they had an explosion of ants and cockroaches everywhere. Morning glories were growing so fast they were filling up the rainforest in a, in a bad way. And they were running low on oxygen and low on food. And it disbanded. Now, one of the ways that you can appreciate the glory of what someone does is you try to do what they do. And as they tried to do what God did, they realized, this ain't so easy. God really did something special. He's a glorious founder. And as we understand that, it leads us in a couple ways. First of all, the first step is we give him glory for having done it. We give him glory for having done it. Now, I have to believe if I took 10 different scientists out to that you know, glass and steel complex so wonderfully made, and I walked them around, and they saw everything in, and then I said to them, isn't this amazing? It just happened by chance. It all happened by an accident. I get, I think 10 of those scientists would look at me and say, that's absurd. Right? The first task is actually to recognize it, that the king of glory has made it. I was reading, uh, checking the weather today, and uh, where I checked, they said, uh, the article said, uh, uh, Mother Nature has given you fathers a good gift today. It's going to be a really nice day. Well, you know, this is how we think of things, right? We per personify the created order. It's really just a version of pantheism. But God would say, no, fathers, um, I gave you a good gift today. I gave you a beautiful day. Hope you enjoy it. So it's recognizing that he's done it. Second of all, it's recognizing the fullness and the wealth of what he's made. One of the grocery stores that we'll shop at has two floors. And on the second floor, there's this long balcony that overlooks all the produce section. And when you go up there, I mean, it's just amazing. All the colors, all the variety. I mean, it's really, you know, a photographer could take a photo and it would probably be, you know, worth keeping. It's just beautiful. And it's just a glimpse, right, of the fertility of the earth, of what God has made before us. Um, you know, there are so many uh, planets around us, right? So many planets. It's fascinating to see all these planets that God has made. But when you compare their fertility to the earth, right, you, you can't compare it. I sometimes wonder, did God do that just to sort of drill it into our head? I made this a full and fruitful place for you. I want you to know I made this habitat for you, that you might get a glimpse of the Father that I am, a glimpse of the Lord that I am. The fullness of the earth is His. Also through it, we see the glory of God's independence. The Apostle Paul was once in Athens, and he began to talk with the Athenian philosophers, right? Philosophers in Athens are a big deal. And this is one of the things he said to them. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is the Lord. This is the God who is not served by hands. When King David said, I want to build a house for you, a church, he said, uh, I got a better idea. Why don't I build a house for you? Because I'm not going to be confined to any space, any building. So he's different in us, different from us in those ways. Uh, God does not need, right? He does not need. God doesn't need to rest. This past weekend, uh, my wife and I were scraping paint and uh, sanding and repainting. And several times, you know, I had to go up, get up, go in, grab some water, right, go back out. When we did it the week before, it was really, really hot. I mean, I could work maybe for 10 minutes at a time. God doesn't need to rest in his work, different than us. He did rest, but that meant a different thing. God didn't create things because he was lonely or empty. Sometimes when we're lonely or empty, we create things like chocolate cakes, right? I feel kind of sad and depressed. I'm going to go make a batch of cookies. Uh, God didn't make the earth because he was a little bit down, nor did he create from pre-existing material, right? I mean, you and I, if we design a home, we have materials we pull upon. Musicians, when they improvise, even though they're improvising and creating on the spot, they're really using notes that are already there, rhythms that are already there, right? God, God jams and new sounds and notes appear. New rhythms appear. Nor is he to be confused with the things that he made. Against pantheism would say that. But God is this independent being, and you and I aren't. It won't be long. You know, anybody that's middle-aged like myself, I, I promise you, it seems just like yesterday I was a millennial. I was never a millennial because I forget what they... I, had a, I think we were busters. We had a terrible name, you know, uh, busters. I don't know what that is. I think that's what I am. But the point is, you know, you blink your eye. And I know it won't be another blink of the eye before I'm on that bed, breathing my last breaths, ready to meet the God who made me, my maker. You and I are not independent. We are dependent creatures. But also to see this glorious founder means we see his glorious goodness, in the creation itself, I mean, the church has always struggled throughout history on this thing, and it followed uh, Greek philosophy when it began to think the stuff that God made wasn't so good. It would play into things like marriage and sexuality. It would play into food and drink. The Apostle Paul spoke so strongly about this. He once said that people that uh, think that they're holier because they don't do those things, they're following a doctrine of demons because the things that God has made are good, and he relishes in his creation enjoying those things that are good. But also, he himself is the founder, we're told in Psalm 145. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all. He gives food in season. God is a giver. The book of James says he's the father of lights who loves to give. And the apex of this heart of God who loves to give, this good God, is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He even gave his son to the world the co-creator, Christ. That son, Jesus Christ, once told a parable. He told a parable of a man that owned a vineyard. 
and he planted, uh, you know, he planted the plants, and he left it with some servants. And one day he sent, or rather he left it with some tenants. One day he sent a servant of his to go get some of the first fruits of it. And when he showed up, the tenants beat the servant and sent him away. He sent another servant. They beat him and shamed him, knocked him on the head, sent him away. He sends more servants. They begin to kill them. He says, I will send my son, and surely if I send my son, they will honor him. He sends his son, and they kill the son. Jesus said that he told that parable to explain how many in Israel had responded to the prophets over the years, but also how he was being responded to. And in that parable, he quotes from Psalm 118, and this is what he says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You hear what he's saying? The founder himself came, and we treated him like a broken brick. We picked him up and we threw him on the pile and said, I have no use for you. But what he was doing was actually something marvelous. He was coming to redeem a people that he could then build into a house. The book of Ephesians would say this, that you and I were alien and strangers. We were outsiders. We were way out, and God brought us in through the blood of his son, through the sacrifice of his son. And now we've become fellow members and saints in the household of God. That's what's happened. And on that household, it's built upon the, the, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the Word of God. And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's building you and I into a temple and a dwelling place. That's what this is. The founder has made a foundation in a house. He's made a household, and you are it. You are that house. This is what he has done but let's now move on to this one who's also glorious presence. Now, if you're familiar with either the films or the books, Lord of the Rings, um, and I hope it's safe to use an illustration from that. I know that, you know, pastors really, like, ran those things into the ground, right? So I waited, I think, a little bit, a year or two. Uh, anyway, but um, in that story, the character that experiences the most profound and immediate change in who he is is Gimli the dwarf. And it doesn't happen when he's in a battle, and it doesn't happen when he sees the ring. It happens when he meets Galadriel, Lady Galadriel, who is sort of like an elf queen, elf royalty. And if you know the story, you know that was really significant because the dwarves and elves didn't get on well. Hostility had grown. In fact, they hated one another. And so uh, the Fellowship of the Ring has nowhere to go but to find refuge in the forest of the elves. And the fellowship of guys are, you know, they're brought before the king and queen, Galadriel being one. And uh, his experience being in her glorious presence changes him. Tolkien wrote, she looked upon Gimli and she smiled. And the dwarf, hearing the names given in his own ancient tongue, looked up and met her eyes. And it seemed to him that he looked suddenly into the heart of an enemy and saw their love and understanding. Wonder came into his face, and then he smiled in answer. So as they're leaving, the Lady Galadriel, because she's so gracious and generous, says, she, wants, she says, request of me a gift and I will give it to you requested me a gift. And Gimli says, you know, the gift has been just being in your presence. 
And she laughs and says, no, I, you know, I, 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 I uh, insist that you let me give you a gift. And Gimli says, if you'll just give me one strand of your golden hair. What he wants is her presence, her glorious presence. She gives him three. She gives him three. Later on, he, when he gets it, he says, these will actually be put in imperishable crystal. He declares that. And later on in the story, when someone speaks poorly of Galadriel, this is what he says, you speak evil of that which is fair beyond the reach of your thought, and only little wit can excuse you. Right? He had had this glorious presence. And it wasn't just her beauty, it was her beauty and her character, her moral beauty that captivated and and transformed him. And it's the same thing with the presence of the Lord when you come to know him. In the the, uh, book of Revelation, the apostle John is trying to explain God on the throne through metaphor. And you know what he chooses? Precious stones and jewels. He's trying to say to us, he's so utterly beautiful. He's more beautiful than anything I've seen before, more glorious. And the same thing's being communicated here when it says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Why? Because you're in the presence of absolute moral beauty. And so those that, you know, have not acted innocently with their hands are those that have harbored, you know, selfish motives, those that have not hungered and thirst to be in his presence. Will they be there? Well, there's a couple things we learn from this. One is, to be in the presence of the glorious God, moral beauty is a requirement. We ourselves must be morally beautiful to be in the presence of someone glorious. You know, someone that's a rebel and an assassin is not going to be in the presence of a king. That only makes sense. We believe that earthly. Sometimes we forget about it heavenly. Then you've got to say, what about us, those of us that have envy in our heart tonight? Those of us that have lust in our heart earlier today. Those of us that feel bitter. You know, you and I can work our way through the world not show that stuff. You know, look at my GPA. Look at my resume. Look at the things I've achieved. Look at what my nonprofit has done. You and I would present these things to the world and say, this is glory, this is glorious, accept me. But imagine yourself before the God who sees everything doing those things. But God, my resume. God, what I did in Washington, D.C. for the homeless. It's pathetic. It would be pathetic to do that as an excuse for the heart. And the good news is, is you and I don't have to. Because in this psalm, we're given a a song of good news when we're told, he who receives the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. In that sense, the righteousness being talked about is to be justified before God. That is for God to make you right before himself. It's not talking about so much the righteousness we do, but the righteousness that is given to us by grace, by mercy, because of God's love. As one writer has said, it's having the smile of God upon you to know you are accepted, to know that your affairs are under his blessing. And how do we get that gracious gift? Because you and I find ourselves like Gimli before a glorious presence. 
we find ourselves in that situation, and we're unworthy, and God makes a request to us. He says, what can I do for you? And the tendency in our heart is to say, just give me another try. Just let me work harder. I'll get it right this time, right? That's the, the narrative we always hear. And it's so sad. It's, it's, so, it's such a hopeless answer. Just give me another try. We basically say, give me one strand of grace, and I'll come up with the other strand with my own works and my own duties. But my friends, we're talking to a three-strand God. We're talking to a God who gives generously, but what we understand, the Father gives his beloved Son the treasure, the treasure of his heart. That was the brokenheartedness of the cross. Jesus suffered physically and terribly, but what broke the heart of the Father and the Son was that they were together in fellowship. The Father gives the Son. The Son renders his life for the glory of the Father, but that he might collect you as a family of God, that he might make you righteous. He takes your sin and gives you his righteousness. And then the Spirit of God works day in and day out to apply this to us. He applies it once and for all, but then he applies it to you and I so that we believe it. The three-person God is working that three-strand gospel that you might be able to come before God today, today in glory. The book of Ephesians would say, holy and blameless in his sight. That's the only way you and I can get there. After Gimli was in the presence of Lady Gadriel, uh, Galadriel, he began to treat the elves differently. When you're in the presence of that God, you begin to treat other people differently. You see them as image bearers. Your heart breaks when 50 of them have been gunned down. Your heart breaks as racism continues to rip through our country and our city because you see them as God sees them or when God's righteousness is made to look like sin in our society, <laughs> when his beauty is made to look like its ugliness. And he is that great warrior, the great king, right? He, the king of glory, the Lord of hosts, and the great enemy he defeats is death and judgment and sin. And those that seek him will seek the face of God. So quickly to close, how does this result in transformation? First of all, we begin to embody the characteristics that were talked about for those who ascend the holy hill. That's what basically the Beatitudes are about. If you've ever read the Beatitudes, right, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. I was meeting with someone this week, and uh, they've just been growing and studying God's word, and they said, you know, I understand now that blessed are those that mourn are those that mourn over their lack of glory and their sin, not just blessed are those that cry and get sad. I mean, God has compassion on people that cry and get sad, but it's deeper. The Beatitudes, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, you and I embrace our privileges, and then we begin to come, become like that. So first, we embody them. Two, our first and foremost desire is the glory, glorious presence of God. Moses was the first Gimli. Moses, God says to him, what request would you make? And you can think all these things Moses might have said get rid of these people I'm having a league, can I have a new batch of people, right? Or give me this and give me that. And Moses says, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. And God says, well, I can't show you all of me. It'll kill you. But I'll let you see the afterglow. 
Moses wants the glorious presence of God. And later he gets it on the Mount of Transfiguration when the Son of God's glory shines down. We're told that Moses and Elijah appear. Moses finally gets what he wants. But guess what? You and I can have it now. You can have it now because the Holy Spirit will bring you into the presence of Christ, the Son of God. And we're told we are transformed from glory to glory as we're hit in his image. Are you getting before Jesus? The only way you'll get before Jesus is by grace. If you're trying to do it by works, you'll, you, you'll always stay like here and he'll be way back there. It's only by his work that you'll get up real close and he'll start to shine. But lastly, we wage war differently. This comes out of uh, Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Here's the strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Think about how we often head into our day. Uh, we head into our day where we wake up and you got these things you're going to face today, right? These obstacles and challenges. But we also find we've spent little time with God. What does that tell us? That tells us we think the battle is in the flesh. You know, we think the battle is that, me conquering these things. The book of Ephesians would say, you and I don't labor against flesh and blood. Do you see the battle behind the battle? Maybe you've got a boss right now that you feel like you're battling with. Do you see the issue under the issue? Or maybe you're in a relationship right now and it's conflict, conflict. Are you able to see what's the spiritual thing driving that? Because that's how we wage war differently when we've been in the presence of God. So may the glory of God shine down on this household. And it begins by us seeing he's a founder and a glorious presence. Would you pray with me? We praise you for who you are, Lord. You are glorious. There is no one else like you. And we are humbled for the way that you make yourself known, even through our worship service, imperfect as it is. You've been making yourself known the whole time. Oh, Lord, I pray that you might shine on every heart here. In Christ's name, amen.